We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Nurit Katz, and this is part two of my conversation with her. Make sure to check out part one, where Nurit and I talk about what sustainability is and what it is not. You can find it wherever you're listening right now. Nurit is UCLA's first chief sustainability officer and a first-generation American, a proud daughter of a Serbian-Croatian-Israeli immigrant. In this episode, we talk about how to get people, and most importantly, organizations and companies, to think and care more about sustainability. And to be honest with you, I was pleasantly surprised by Nurit's outlook, because I personally have a tendency to get into this all-is-lost mode, and there's certainly a lot of this doomsday messaging around climate and environment out there. And it's actually nice to hear a professional who, while being aware of all the challenges, has a positive and proactive outlook. And so here's our chat. And so we're kind of getting at that question of how do we create the right incentives? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the big question and a very important question in our field. And there are you know, researchers who, who study that, you know, at UCLA, we have a faculty member in the business school, Magali Delmas, who did a really interesting research project called Engage, where she was working with some students in our housing area, working to get them to reduce their energy use and testing out different messaging to see how it would impact people's energy savings. Some of the messaging focused on health, like the impact of pollution from the energy use. Some of it focused on saving money. Some of it focused on environment. And interestingly, with our students who had families, the health message resonated more than the here's the money you can save message. So, you know, a lot of times people think it all has to be economic incentives. And that's, that can be a powerful tool, whether it's a tax or a subsidy. But there are plenty of other kind of messages and um, ways to shift behavior. There's a whole book called Nudge that sort of looks at that question. Right. And that's when we talk about kind of individual decisions. And well, in, in the States, health is money because the medical bills w will bankrupt you. Again, going back to how the capitalist system functions, it always goes back to money in some way. Like, for example, you work for UCLA. And what is the incentive for UCLA to even care? Because it is an institution And I don't think any of the students make their decision, you know, speaking of incentives, to go to UCLA versus any other university because it has a very sustainable way of running things, right? Neither do professors choose to work for UCLA because it's environmentally friendly or sustainable, right? So what's the well, incentive for UCLA? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, actually, Nationally, you know, UCLA is the number one public university. So people come to UCLA for many different reasons. But there was a national survey through Princeton Review that did show that students do care whether or not their university is addressing this issue. I mean, 
Hmm. The younger generation is very keenly aware of these issues. You know, they're the ones who are going to have to deal with the worst impacts of climate change. You know, there are impacts to climate change now. You know, we're dealing with increased wildfires and drought and issues here in California, but the worst is unfortunately yet to come. Even as we act now, there will still be worse impacts because, you know, we, we haven't acted fast enough to completely reverse everything. So we're trying to mitigate and, and reduce the impacts, but either way they're coming. And, and this is a big concern for our youngest generation. I mean, they have real, real worries about what their future is going to look like and what kind of planet they're being left by their parents and grandparents' generation. So, so I, think, I think our students do really care. You know, the University of California has been addressing sustainability for over a decade now, formally. And, you know, I think part of it is we are a public university and we see this as part of our, you know, research, teaching and service mission. You must address these critical challenges facing society, whether it's our major issues with food, you know, security. There's a, there's a UC initiative, the Global Food Initiative, that's really looking to solve a lot of our food-related crises to the carbon neutrality initiative that's trying to address climate change like this is what we do is work on these big global issues through innovative teaching and research so I think it's very core to the mission of, of who we are as an institution because you are a public institution you you can have that kind of thinking yet on a large scale the economy and the majority of the organizations are private and they don't necessarily practice that kind of public good thinking you know, for them, I think there are different driving factors. It is very much in many ways a myth, this idea that sustainability and business are counter to each other. Um, I think the majority of large companies now have positions like mine, chief sustainability officer. And while in the past, some companies might have addressed it more as window dressing or greenwashing to try yeah. to, you know, clean up their their act, there are many companies that are really integrating sustainability into their core strategy now, and they understand that it's good for business. They understand that doing this right is good for business. And there is really a business case for sustainability, you know, trying to reduce waste. And as Ray Anderson is a business leader in sustainability, who I really admired, um, he passed away, unfortunately, but for his company, they did a big program called Quest that was about kind of engaging their employees in trying to reduce waste. Mm -hmm. And for that purpose, they defined waste as anything that they were purchasing in terms of materials and then not selling to a customer. And so they were able to save millions of dollars by people in their factories looking for these opportunities to make things more efficient. So on right. some level, sustainability in a business context is about efficiency and reducing waste and can result in significant cost savings. But um, you know, there's one writer, Bob Willard, who wrote The Sustainability Advantage. He uses in some of his talks this idea of an iceberg and points out that those cost savings are just sort of like the tip. And that's what some people focus on, but that there are all of these larger ways in which addressing sustainability can benefit a company in terms of employee retention and overall brand value. And so there are a lot of different ways that sustainability can create value for a company. And from what I hear, we had a CEO that was speaking at Anderson who said he's really seen a shift in terms of the boardroom of these large companies that people people get it differently now. Now, that doesn't mean we don't still have a long way to go, 
But just over the past decade, I think there's been a pretty major shift in terms of um, people's understanding of, of how this all intersects. We witness all of these events. I think that is part of the reason why the changes in the minds are happening. Yet a lot of times we don't know how to interpret all of these events and how how can we impact and do our part in it? And so I want to ask you about your work at UCLA Extension, educating professionals. I teach in a, a program that we have through UCLA Extension. It's a sustainability certificate program for professionals. And I teach the core course that everyone has to take that gives you sort of the introduction to the field and the certificate program. And I've been very inspired by the breadth of interest in this topic. So we get professionals from really every industry, every walk of life, and every part of the world. So I have a lot of international students from South America, from the Middle East. I have had students from Israel. I know we were talking about Israel earlier. I have students from Brazil, students from Asia, Europe, almost every continent except mm -hmm. Antarctica. And truly every industry, you know, in one class, I'll have a hospital professional, real estate professional, engineer, you know, I've had script writers, a stunt woman took one of my classes. So, mm -hmm. you know, people are coming from all these different walks of life, and they're seeking, I think, to connect their careers to something that is meaningful to them. I think a yeah. lot of people do care about their issues, you know, these issues. And, and as you said they may not know how to connect and so that's part of what our program does. So I would say probably about half the students who come to the program are looking to apply sustainability in their existing career. So maybe they're a lawyer but they want to do more environmental law or they're a developer and they want to develop greener buildings or more sustainable housing developments. I've had teachers who want to develop curriculum in sustainability And then we have a significant portion who are looking to really do a complete career change. So maybe they're starting out in real estate, but they want to go into solar. So, you know, a lot of people who are pivoting and then a lot of people who are trying to apply things to their existing careers. But what I tell my students, both at Extension and our undergraduate and graduate students, is that having a career in sustainability doesn't necessarily mean you have to have sustainability in your title. You don't have to be a sustainability manager or a chief sustainability officer like I am, there's, you know, you can do sales for a solar company, you could make documentaries that are impactful, you know, there's plenty of room for media and arts work in this space. So really anything that someone is interested in, I think there's a way to contribute to solving these critical problems for the world. There's definitely a need for that. I personally have been looking into that program, because to me personally, there's no question that this is the biggest challenge. And If it is, then everybody has to be participating to the best of their ability. And it doesn't, it certainly doesn't seem like recycling and composting and not drying your clothes in the dryer will do it. And driving a Prius. <laughs> that's Yeah, I think the key thing to think about is it's necessary, but not sufficient. So individual action is important. I don't want people to dismiss it and say, oh, well, now because companies should be doing things, I can just, you know, have carte blanche to do whatever I want. Like, I think people do need to address their individual footprint, but there is so much more power and there's so much more need for collective action, for communities coming together to change things for their neighborhood, for people coming together to address things on a policy level. I mean, the urgency of these issues, especially climate change, 
are such that we definitely cannot rely on individual actions alone. We do need major policy changes. We do need major collective community action. But it's not an either or. It's very much a both and. And so do you, I mean, not to get too much into the politics, but do you feel a little more optimistic with the new administration? I do. And I think, you know, sustainability should not be a political issue. Making sure that our kids have air that is breathable and safety from increasing natural disasters and drinkable water is not a political issue. But unfortunately, in the U.S., it has been politicized and there is a big difference in terms of the different parties' approaches. And so, yes, I do very much feel more optimistic for significant action. I mean, I think compared to the prior administration, the current administration is taking a much more science and data-based approach, is putting experts into government agencies that have the right expertise and background to really try to solve problems in the best way. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a partisan thing to say. You know, again, science shouldn't be partisan either. This is about, you know, how do we How do we constructively solve problems? And I think there are many people on both sides of the political aisle who recognize that and who are working together. You know, there are unfortunately extremists who do not, but there are many people who recognize the importance of solving these problems in ways that um, are constructive. I do want to ask you a little bit more about your own path in that field. How did you get into it? Well, I was kind of passionate about these issues from a very young age. I actually organized my class in sixth grade to adopt an acre of rainforest and was very concerned about solving environmental and and social challenges. I was fortunate enough to have adults in my life who really supported my education and learning and would, you know, get me uh, interesting books that I was interested in. And and I read a lot, a Mm. lot, a lot at that age. And so I, I learned a lot of what was going on in the world and the challenges and solutions through through reading. It's amazing to me now, the kind of information that kids have access to and the tools, you know, now, you know, a child that age is able to start a business in their neighborhood and create a website. And, you know, there are so many young people doing just absolutely incredible things enabled by the internet and different, you know, information tools that we didn't have then. Um, So that's pretty amazing to see. I get really inspired by some of these um, young people like starting a nonprofit at age 10 and, you know, this sort of thing. My initial career was more focused on environmental education, actually. I really loved teaching. I did some outdoor education, you know, taking kids who'd never been to natural areas like hiking and some overnights um, through L.A. County Parks and Rec. I did farm to school program. I taught in a program like that for a while. So kids would come out to the farm and learn where food is from. And then the program also included a garden at their school where they could grow food themselves. And then food from the farm would go into the cafeteria. So the kids would have access to healthier food. So that kind of comprehensive program. So a lot of different um, education work. And then I ended up directing a program or co-directing a program in college that I had previously volunteered for and kind of saw the impact that you can have at a management level. And even though I missed sort of working with the kids as much, I saw that I could create programs. And so eventually I went back to graduate school for management and policy and kind of took a different direction, but teaching was always my first love. And so I'm really glad to have found the program at UCLA Extension and to be able to continue teaching, at least with adults. I miss working with kids sometimes, but 
that's sort of the the path that I took. I know you you were very and you remain very passionate about biodiversity and the wildlife. I also growing up remember being very very much in love and inspired by the beauty of the nature and one of the things that are is the saddest for me is that I feel that you know speaking of the future generations for them it will be just you know those photographs and videos that we're taking of the wildlife that's terrifying is it even possible to maintain it and what is the importance of maintaining other species besides just the beauty yeah. and love you know the beauty and love is important um but you know we are not separate that's so much of the errors and um, dangerous behaviors of humans comes from this myth that we are somehow this sort of delusion that we can separate ourselves from the natural systems that we're part of and we are not separate and biodiversity is really critical to a functioning ecology which is critical to a functioning planet that supports human life so i mean on a fundamental level it's all connected and we we can't survive on this planet if we really crash all the systems that support human life. Right. Um, but we but have it is been. also, we have been, and that's why this is such a critical area to address. Um, I can't answer the question of, you know, when the turning points are. But I do know that there is, although we've lost a lot, there is a lot left to protect. And I find that, that life on the planet can be a way to connect with everyone, regardless of your political background, that wonder that you see in someone when they get to see a beautiful, a beautiful bird or an incredible sea creature. I think that's universal. You know, you look at programs like David Attenborough's programs, like, you know, BBC Earth and things like that. And I think they touch people in a way that many other things can't. I think that that, that connection that we have, which some have called biophilia, that love for life is mm -hmm. very powerful and, and very deep. And There's just so much more of it around us than we realize. You know, Los Angeles is this huge kind of mega city, but our researchers at UCLA have found that LA County is home to more than 4,000 different species of plants and animals, including 52 different endangered species. So it's actually a biodiversity hotspot. Mm -hmm. And when people learn to look, you know, there's incredible life all around us, even right here in the city. One of the things that kind of kept me sane during the pandemic so far is I got even more involved in a, a study of raptors here in Los Angeles, so hawks and owls. This is a, a survey that's funded by Friends of Griffith Park and led by mm -hmm. a colleague of mine from UCLA, Dan Cooper. We track nesting raptors in Los Angeles over the last, I think, five years now. The study has looked at how are these raptors, which are predators sort of top of the food chain, surviving in this urban environment and how are they adapting. And we've found a lot of new nests and monitored a lot of nests. And it's been both a beautiful experience for me and just exciting to be part of uh, urban ecology research. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I love seeing yeah. wild nature. It's just fascinating to me. I'm growing up in Moscow. There's much less. It's a much more densely uh, populated than Los Angeles. And there's just no space for wildlife in Moscow. Like the best we get is pigeons and crows and maybe a tiny mm. squirrel in the, in the park, but that's all you get in Moscow. There used to be mooses in the neighboring, uh, forests, but not by the time I was born, they were all gone. And so 
we kind of vaguely get the idea that we're all connected, I think, on an intuitive level. I think people have connected to the bees thing a little mm -hmm. more with how, like, without bees, there's not going to be any trees, <laughs> basically. And without trees, yeah. we can't breathe. So that's kind of a simple, you know, one, two, three. Okay, I get it. Um, yeah. What are other examples that we can bring out for people to make that connection stronger and to make that uh, idea of protecting wildlife and biodiversity more acute? Experiential learning is always the best. So there are some really wonderful, what you would call citizen science or community science efforts out there that people can get involved in. A friend of mine at the Natural History Museum leads this City Nature Challenge, which started out with just Los Angeles and San Francisco. And now I think I want to say definitely over a hundred different cities around the world. And so oh, wow. it uses a tool called iNaturalist. Um, and each spring we actually, um, people can sign up and then through a period of a few days, try to observe as much nature as they can. So they take a photo with their cell phone of a plant or a bird. And with the iNaturalist app, If you don't know what something is, there are scientists who will help ID it for you. So there's all kinds of scientists of different backgrounds, like entomologists and, you know, ornithologists who go into iNaturalist and, and help ID things. So yeah, in 2020, the town with the most observations was Cape Town, South Africa, with 53,763 observations that people entered. San Francisco had over 2,900 people participate. So they kind of do this big challenge and you see like which city has the most species, the most observations, the most participants. And so you get that sort of competitive fun piece to it and engage mm -hmm. people in connecting with the biodiversity that's around them. That's fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely yeah. put a link about that to, to the show notes so that people get, yeah. can jump It'll on. It'll be April on. 30th to May 3rd will be taking pictures and uploading and then May 4th to May 9th will be people IDing what was found. Citynaturechallenge.org. So that's a great way for people to connect with local biodiversity. Yeah. And especially in the pandemic, I feel like a lot of people are trying to at least get out into the nature and it's a great way to connect kids to that stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah that sounds absolutely. like a lot of fun. I do want to ask you about your role as the chief of the sustainability at UCLA. I was thinking about your role and there's the environment czar in the US and you're like UCLA tsaritsa of environment, <laughs> <laughs> right? Going back to, to Eastern European roots. UCLA is like a town. How do you create sustainability in that place and what, is it, what does it involve? Yeah, absolutely. It really, you're, you're spot on. UCLA is like a city where daily population, 80,000 people. So in that way, the role of chief sustainability officer at a university is very similar to, you know, being the sustainability officer for a city or for another very large organization. My deputy chief sustainability officer, Bonnie Benson, likens it to being an air traffic controller. Mm. You know, as CSO, you're really working across the entire university um, and helping to build connections and collaborations that move programs forward that, that addresses everything from you know water to energy to food transportation etc there are many things that the work has in common with what sustainability officers do at large companies but as a university there are some unique wonderful parts to addressing sustainability at a university which is that obviously our core is teaching and research and so 
you know, we have a lot of innovative research happening in sustainability, including a major program called the Sustainable LA Grand Challenge that brings together researchers from all different disciplines to make Los Angeles the first sustainable megacity. Ooh, you know, tell me more about that. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it that. is really an exciting program. And definitely you should check it out if you Google Sustainable LA Grand Challenge at UCLA. And so, you know, working with our faculty and our students is an incredible part of doing this work at a university. We say at the University of California, we say we want to practice what we teach. So, you know, it's really both addressing it in our own operations, but then also kind of, you know, training and teaching the leaders of tomorrow and also creating this innovative research. And so, I love that intersection. And, you know, I work with our faculty to try to find opportunities to apply that research on our campus. And so that sort of intersection between academics and operations is exciting and something you might not have at a company. That's really fun because you're basically there at the source and you can experiment and play with all that stuff. Yeah, we think of the university as sort of a living laboratory for sustainability where we can test out these ideas. So. And so what are some of the other exciting programs happening at UCLA these days? There's a lot of really exciting projects across the campus. You know, researchers are looking at environmental justice issues, trying to address, you know, food security, creating innovative, you know, energy technologies, lots of interesting public health research. UCLA has a brand new center on kind of the intersection of climate change and health, the Center for Healthy Climate Solutions. We have researchers in, at the law school and the Emmett Institute of Climate Change and Environment that are addressing a lot of the major policy issues. In fact, one of the lead faculty directors there, Ann Carlson, actually was appointed chief counsel for National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, mm. by uh, the Biden administration. Wow. Yeah, so she'll be working on national transportation policy. So, so she'll be away from UCLA for a while, and we will really miss her. I always say that migration is an environmental uh, issue. Is there any studies or is there any uh, curiosity in that area? Very much. A lot of environmental issues can drive immigration. Um, yeah. A lot of, in addition to, you know, I mentioned earlier, conflicts, but also immigration. Like there is estimates that there will be millions of climate refugees due to floods and fires and droughts and not being able to grow food. You know, the UN has a whole program on climate change and disaster displacement. And this is happening now. You know, refugees are being displaced now. Um, Absolutely. And we had that in California so, already happened when the fires happened and we had thousands of people uh, in need of yeah. shelter and, and support and people were in cars and it doesn't look like we're prepared at all, even within within the country. Forget the rest of the world and we will need to help yeah. the world because of what we were saying earlier if somebody's failing everybody's failing and so exactly. i'm curious and if um if there are any initiatives in that area do you, that you can tell me about yeah there's a lot of research at ucla around immigration there's um there's focus on immigration law there's a ucla center for the study of um international immigration um there's also a UCLA Center for Global and Immigrant Health and the School of Public Health. So there's a lot of different um, researchers at UCLA working on different issues that relate to immigration. And I'd be happy to try and connect you um, since it sounds like you're doing really interesting 
uh, work as well. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I would love to ha- talk to someone about about how they think about that and that angle of of environment. Is there anything I have missed? Is there anything you would like to share? Um, no, I just want to say thank you for taking the time. Both, you know, it's always special to get to talk about family and and background and um, you know immigration in general, and then also to get to take the time to talk about sustainability, which is an issue I'm really passionate about and. You know, I hope uh, it'll inspire some folks to maybe come join our program or some program somewhere to learn about how they can have an impact on these issues because everybody really can play a role in solving these challenges. Definitely. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you have a lot going on in your uh, in your city of UCLA. Thanks. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you haven't yet, check out part one of this conversation wherever you're listening. And, you know, take a moment, smell the roses or whatever you have growing around you. It's the beautiful time of the year and seeing the renewal of the nature always gives me hope and comfort and I wish that for you. I'm including a few links to resources that Nurit shared in the show notes. I definitely am going to sign up for the iNaturalist thing and participate in observing the nature. I can't wait to finally learn all the names of the flowers in English. And I hope you join me there too. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Join our rooms on Clubhouse every Tuesday morning, Thursday evening. And if you need an invite, shoot me a message and I will personally bring you on through the We The Aliens Club. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter and never miss an event or an episode of the show. And now you can also text me directly at 310-388-8279 and be part of that community. All this contact info and links is in the show notes and on our website. And last but not least, don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who needs to take a pause and look up in the sky and see a bird, or someone who loves animals and will be excited to join the iNaturalist nature observation thing, or someone who's like me and has all of these doomsday thinking inclinations and needs a positive outlook injection. Just click share and text them a link. And remember, we're here to stay. We will find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. This is my country, my country, and